Hi, it's Fraser here. People often ask me how they can support Spiked. The best way is to make a regular donation. Even just £5 per month, the cost of a pack of face masks can make a huge difference to our work. It's thanks to listeners like you who make regular monthly donations that Spiked is able to keep producing our groundbreaking articles, essays, podcasts and more. So, to start your regular donation today, just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, back to the Spiked podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week as ever we have Spiked's deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Today we're talking about the storming of the Capitol. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. We're storming the Capitol. It's a revolution. Protesters smashed through the doors, broke their way into the Capitol, making it to the Senate chamber, overwhelming police. So go home. We love you. It's not protest. It's insurrection. This week, supporters of Donald Trump stormed the Capitol building, interrupting the certification of Joe Biden's presidential win. Rioters pushed past police, climbed the Capitol's walls and smashed windows to occupy the building. Some of them made it all the way to the Senate floor and to the office of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The scenes were both surreal and tragic. At times, the protesters wandered around aimlessly taking selfies, but there was also violence, chaos and clashes with police. Four died in the ensuing mayhem, and at least one of them was shot dead by the police. Trump and his allies have been claiming for months that the election was stolen. They've alleged a vast conspiracy involving everyone from the FBI and the Justice Department to North Korea and the late Hugo Chavez. Trump has incited his supporters to never concede or surrender. And while he did tell the rioters to go home in a video message, he also said, we love you and you're very special. Tom, first of all, give us your thoughts on these extraordinary scenes. Oh, they were despicable. I mean, it was, for all the absurd qualities to it that you gesture to, a direct attack on democracy. This was an attempt to thwart the signing off of the US election result in which Joe Biden won fair and square, an attempt to stop that on behalf of a lunatic fringe. I think it's important to point out that this group of people are not representative of your average Trump supporter to say the least. You know, these people, broadly speaking, were a mix of extreme right-wing campaigners. There was people walking around with the Confederate flag, a lot of conspiracy theorists. That shaman mm. guy is apparently is known on the conspiracy theory scene as the Q shaman. There's a lot of believers in genuinely lunatic conspiracy theories within that movement that we saw. I don't think you can learn a lot about Trump's coalition from that, but you definitely learn a lot about Trump and the way that he dealt with them. His tendency over the course of his presidency to nod and wink at these people, and as you say, to G them up in this instance, is absolutely despicable. And the fact that in the past 12 hours he's put out a statement actually trying to disavow them, I think just shows how ultimately kind of convenient yet cowardly that relationship is. You know, mm. They're useful to him at some points, but not others. It's uh, horrendous. At the same time, I think what I'm very worried about is the reaction to it, because whilst this period of the election result being denied by Trump has been very damaging to people's faith in democracy, I'm also very concerned about the impact on freedom and democracy that will come in its aftermath. We've already seen, of course, Facebook 
basically permanently suspend Trump. He was kicked off of Twitter for a while. There's talk about labelling these people domestic terrorists, as you say, which would potentially have a knock-on effect on how you police these protest movements, etc. And there's a real danger that just as the storming of the Capitol could cast a long shadow over people's faith in democracy, that in relation to the kind of technocratic elite's regulation of free speech and democracy, that this will also be used as a kind of pretext for it. That the idea that this is a coup, which I don't think it was, largely because it was more of a kind of surreal stunt than anything else, even Mm. though one with with violent and fatal consequences, the spectre of that could easily be used to hem in political debate and to regulate politics in a way that I think could be really serious. Because, you know, looking at the people who saw in that Capitol building, these people ultimately, they don't look like winners, do they? Mm. This is the lunatic fringe of a coalition which is on its way out of power. The thing that really concerns me is the people who are about to assume that power again, the people who have retained their cultural and institutional power, even over the Trump presidency, doubling down in the wake of this. And I think that's really got the potential to cast an even longer shadow than the events of the last couple of days. Ella, your thoughts? I agree with that. I think it's interesting to just pause and look at what happened within the space of that evening, because I was kind of grotesquely fascinated by it, because it was so revealing about the state of contemporary politics in that things that Tom's already said, lots of them were live streaming to their social media platforms as they went on, taking selfies, Mm. some with policemen, which is a very serious thing, or taking pictures of themselves sat in Nancy Pelosi's desk amid lots of strewn paper and smashed windows. The pantomime aspect of it with the costumes, you know, not just that shaman, but people dressed up as Abraham Lincoln, people dressed up as superheroes, people dressed up in kind of full camo. It had a really carnivalesque quality to it with serious elements. I mean, there were people in there wearing jumpers with work makes you free written on it. Auschwitz quote, of course, there was the flying of the Confederate flag, something that has never happened, even during the civil war in the Capitol building. Lots of people pointing out the kind of grotesque symbolism of that. But it was it was so shallow. And mm. if you actually listen to what they were saying, the kind of common message of lots of the rioters who were interviewed on ITV were saying, we are good people. You made us do this. You know, there's, it was so kind of drippingly pathetic and like, you have forced us to do this. We really don't want to do this. There was a woman filmed that's been circulating on social media crying because she got maced and she's really upset that she's been maced. And she said, well, we were just trying to start a revolution. And you just think, what is going on? I think it's fair enough and right to, you know, to some extent to laugh at this, the ridiculousness of it, the patheticness of it, the kind of, the shallowness of it, because the the thing that's, as Tom says, that's worrying is not these kind of people who are, who are doing this stunt, a stunt which is, you know, stunts can sometimes be brilliant, but a stunt that's based on such an empty, baseless claim that the election was stolen. The reaction is the worrying thing. So people talking about it being a coup, you know, certain mm. British journalists getting upset that other British journalists were using words like scuffles. I mean, you can take this seriously in terms of it's an attack on democracy and the symbolism of that is the important thing. You know, the symbolism of going to the Capitol declaring that this is our house and not anyone else's. But I think that we risk allowing or giving this kind of pantomime politics too much credit if we start using words like terrorism, if we start talking about the idea that this was a coup or that, you know, there's kind of conspiracy theories flying around that it was planned. They were paid actors. Some people are saying they were paid actors by Soros because the level of anti-Semitism always infects these kinds of discussions. But it's differentiating between the weirdness of what happened 
in the space of those hours and the reaction to it, which is the important thing going forward. Because as Tom says, these people will go home. Lots of them haven't been arrested, which is another question about the way in which the police responded to it. But the real concern I have is the people at home watching Trump supporters who don't go and storm buildings dressed up like idiots, but who might still genuinely think that this election was stolen or the Democrat voters who are still at home thinking that the 2016 election was stolen. It's the deeper questions about democracy that are important. This not getting hung up on the kind of bizarre antics of a of basically a group of thugs. I think that's exactly right. You know, we do have to remember that the distrust of democracy goes back a lot further than this one event, the storming of the Capitol, or even the last few months of Trump doubting the election. You know, of course, a substantial number of Republicans tragically believe that the election was stolen from Trump. And tragically, a substantial number of Democrats believe that the 2016 election was stolen from Hillary Clinton. And those ideas didn't come from nowhere. They came from the top. They came from the top of their respective parties. And, you know, you could, you could say that this distrust goes back even further when people were doubting the legitimacy of, of Obama. Trump was involved in that as well because he was one of the big um, pushers of the Bertha conspiracies. But even in the 2000s, a close result between George Bush and Al Gore cast out on the the elected legitimacy of the, of the president. So for years and years, there has been this sense building that people feel alienated from the results of elections. The idea of losers' consent seems to have gone out the window, and that has been fanned by mm. elites in both parties, which is why it's so grotesque to hear them grandstanding so much over this event, to hear all these pronouncements about the death of democracy from people who in ordinary times couldn't give two figs about democracy. Mm. I mean, even even Coca-Cola has put out a statement saying that this is a dark day for democracy as if <laughs> mm. and I saw I saw JP Morgan put out a statement as well which is kind of interesting how just all of the corporations <laughs> seem to feel so invested in this whole issue I think the point about conspiracy theories is really important because I think we're really seeing how corrosive allowing conspiracy theories often for political benefit to run rampant you know we saw mm. that in relation to the Democratic Party during the first term of Trump's presidency their indulgence of this Russia Cambridge Analytica whole conspiracy theory, which has been proven to be complete nonsense, really did damage and really inflamed the cultural war tensions in the country because there was a large proportion, as you say, of the Democratic coalition who genuinely believed that Trump was this kind of Manchurian candidate. And then on the Trump side, you just have a slightly more extreme and elegant version of that, something which is even more absurd, arguably, but nevertheless still has many of the same characteristics. This idea that this kind of nexus of Venezuelan-made voting machines and Soros, etc., stole the election away from him has been incredibly corrosive and his indulgence of all of that. Not because I think Trump even genuinely believes any of this stuff. I mean, maybe he does, but I think the about turn he's done in the, he did overnight in relation to denouncing the storming of the capital and then committing himself to the peaceful transfer of power shows this was always a bit of a game for him anyway. It's just been really, really damaging. But I think at the same time, whilst it's important to show up the kind of double standards on democracy and the double standards on conspiracy theories and how that's all played out, I think it's also quite clear that you are seeing this kind of like mirror image nihilism brewing on Mm. the kind of extremes of both ends, which is really, really concerning. And what's really striking is that 
if you think back to the summer as well, because we've seen something like this happen before. If you think about the wake of the kind of George Floyd process, which in certain places, particularly in Portland and elsewhere, degenerated into these kind of days-long violent campaigns against federal buildings, courthouses, police stations, constantly trying to burn them to the ground, you know, people running around and destroying neighbourhoods in this incredibly nihilistic fashion. This is kind of a mirror image version of that in a different sort of way and on a different sort of scale. And what's very concerning about it is that in both cases, you have the Trump set and then obviously the Democratic establishment refusing really to either condemn it or in Trump's case to go the extra mile and actually really to kind of endorse it. And that's Mm. something which is really quite dangerous. We've kind of seen this year that a lot of the culture war, because it it was often just limited to social media, was very testy. It was very unpleasant. But it also often felt quite trivial. It was something very kind of contained and the kind of bile and the nastiness of it was something you could escape just by logging off. That has turned violent this year. That has turned physical this year. And even though kind of, if you want to say Antifa on one side and QAnon on the other are the extremes of those respective arguments and are the most unhinged sections of those particular kind of political coalitions, if you like, the fact that this has has kind of spilled out into the streets and even onto the streets of the capital of the United States, I think is very, very significant and will take a, a lot of work to try and undo what it seems has happened over the course of the past 12 months. Ella. And it's the most frustrating thing is that this kind of way of dealing with politics as a sort of point scoring game is continuing. So there's a very serious questions to be asked, for example, about the way in which this was allowed to happen. There's sorts of people joking with sort of memes and stuff on social media about how lax the police were, but it's not a joke. There was like reports or rumours about doors not being guarded properly. There certainly wasn't the level of, for example, police and security that there was that was used to clear a space in Lafayette Square in June last year when Trump wanted to go and do a photo opportunity during the Black Lives Matter George Floyd protest. So there's a very obvious difference between the way in which security dealt with Black Lives Matter's protests and the way in which security dealt with these capital rioters. But the response to that, if you look at people pointing out that difference, is not to say, look at the nuances of what's going on there, but to say, why didn't the police crack down on these people harder? It's not fair. And you just think, okay, is this the future that everyone wants? That, you know, there'll be, for example, using words like domestic terrorism, that there's no potential for political protest without police coming in and cracking heads. I mean, part of the grotesque nature of this, the important part of the grotesque nature of this is not just that they came in and smashed windows in the Capitol, though the symbolism of that is great. It's the fact that their motives were based on complete fallacy that an election was stolen. And you can imagine a different situation not to kind of glorify violence or glorify stunts like this, but there have in history been different situations where buildings have been occupied, you know, very significant buildings, capital buildings across the US have been occupied on the basis of some quite worthy causes. So it's this kind of, the kind of point scoring nature of this, the push to kind of get one-upmanship on people that just ends up in a complete disassociation from what the actual question is how mm. free should protest be how reasonable is this particular kind of protest or is it a riot 2020 was a unique and challenging year that made us change our entire way of life but with each challenge we learn to survive to thrive and strive to be better we don't know what 2021 will bring yet but with the great courses plus we can make this our year 
by continuing to learn with purpose. Because when we learn with purpose, we can do better and be better. With The Great Courses Plus, the opportunities to learn are endless. You can get unlimited access to thousands of video and audio courses from top experts in their fields. You can stream courses on how to build a better financial plan, how to control stress and make it work for you, how to live sustainably, and even how to play guitar like a pro. One course I've really been enjoying is Capitalism versus Socialism, Comparing Economic Systems. This course gives you a fantastic overview of the great economic thinkers and how their ideas played out in practice. Ultimately, every economic decision boils down to the question of what makes a good society. And after the catastrophe of the past year, this is a question we need to ask ourselves more than ever. This course will give you the tools to translate your values into practical economic ideas. Whether you want to take a deep dive into a subject or learn a bit of everything, The Great Courses Plus has something for everyone. And you can download The Great Courses Plus app to watch or listen to lectures on any device, anytime, anywhere. So, what will your purpose be this year? What new things will you learn? Sign up for The Great Courses Plus and find out. And if you visit our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked, you'll get a 14-day trial with unlimited access for free. You do not want to miss out on this. So go now to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. One of the most significant responses to storming of the capital hasn't come from politicians, but actually from social media, from Silicon Valley. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg announced that Trump would be suspended from his platform for at least the duration of his term. And many people simply assume indefinitely. I mean, Tom, you've written about this this week. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, this is absolutely terrifying. And the, the fact that people don't recognise this, I think, is is really an indictment of a lot of people in, in politics and commentary today. What they've effectively done is indefinitely suspend the still democratically elected president of the United States from addressing his people in one way or another. It's, it, Facebook is a large part of what now constitutes the public square. The fact that it's a private company is kind of neither here nor there. It's a finicky distinction, to be honest with you. And the fact that he's been deprived of that way of actually addressing people is incredibly serious. I mean, big tech censorship, we've talked about it a lot on this show. We write about it all the time. It's slowly been encroaching into more and more areas of political discussion and debate in recent years. The past mm. year has been terrible for accelerating that. What with clampdowns on COVID misinformation, which often just take the form of clampdowns on lockdown dissent. Again, increasing pushes to police hate speech, the definition of which seems to get wider by the day. All of that is really concerning. But where Trump was concerned, the social media companies always held out that little bit. They would slap mm. warnings on his tweets. They would sometimes try to limit the spread of them. You can re remember, if you cast your mind back over the course of last year, you know, his tweets about COVID, his tweets about the Black Lives Matter protests where he said, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. There's a few other examples where they were slapped with warnings. Obviously, ever since the election, everything he says about the election comes with that little health warning about his claims being disputed, all of which is also censorious in its own way. But nevertheless, they would never cross that line into saying we're going mm. to shut down his account because he's the democratically elected president of the United States. And what he says is kind of, you know, in the public interest. The fact that they've crossed this line, I know it's only for the last two weeks, but this is on the point of principle very, very significant. 
if big tech censorship wasn't bad enough to begin with, the fact that they are now taking it upon themselves to censor even Donald Trump is is very, very serious. And it just strikes me as so bizarre that there are so many people, particularly on the left, who are not only celebrating this, but actually bear a large part of the responsibility for bringing it about in the first place. Ever since the 2016 election, they've constantly been saying that Facebook and Twitter need to do more, that they need to regulate political ads, that they need to clamp down on Trump and his hate speech. In so doing, they've effectively handed completely unaccountable billionaire capitalists the right to referee political debate. Mm. And especially as some of these people like to think of themselves as dead, dangerous and radical, why they don't think that's a danger for the future, why they don't think at some point that machinery is going to be wielded against people they happen to agree with. And we've even already seen some instances of that with Antifa accounts being memory hold along with QAnon accounts in the past year is just ridiculous. And this is something which I think is, again, going to be one of those legacies of not necessarily the Trump era, but the reaction to it, which could be very, very serious for for free speech and democracy. Ella? That point that Tom has just made about it being of public interest to know what Trump is saying is really important because you sort of, you listen to the radio, watch the telly and you hear Trump has made this statement or something. And so you go to Twitter and say, where is it? Let me see it. And it's very hard to find it. And that kind of, the practical nature of needing to know what someone has said, even if they're your worst enemy, to be able to properly create your argument against them is lost if you ban people. And just that kind of, that tactical issue seems to be lost on these people. I mean, it's the kind of cause celeb among celebrities, Sasha Baron Cohen Mm. and others tweeting and saying, will now you ban him from all platforms? Like it's kind of most basic virtue signaling to say what we should do is ban him as if with people actually running with guns and smashing up windows, that the solution to this would be to ban someone off social media. I mean, what a ridiculous response to the situation. I mean, the most frustrating thing is that this is playing directly into the whole way in which the Trump campaign and Trumpism has worked, you know, since the election was called over the last year or two, which is that he thrives on this idea that he gets cancelled and his supporters, the more extreme ones, thrive on the idea, which has proven true time and time again, that they are being silenced. And so it's now leading into questions of whether he should be impeached. I mean, the banning is going extreme now, whether to stop him from ever being able to run for president again, even as an independent. And that drive to basically push the problem of Trumpism away or underground by silencing it only enlivens this particular extreme level of his base even further. So the solution that we want or the future that we want is to not have to, I don't want to have to deal with Trumpism anymore. It's not populism. It's degrading to populism. It's got nothing progressive in terms of its potential for political change other than being not the establishment, not the Clintons, not Biden. But you're not going to deal with that problem by just pretending it doesn't exist. And so the whole drive to censor and to ban is essentially putting your fingers in your ears and saying, we don't want to deal with this section of the population, large section of the population that voted for Trump, not those that stormed the building, but those that voted for Trump. And so it's just prolonging this issue and entrenching the division in American politics, which is pretty vicious at the moment by essentially Democrats and celebrities and loudmouth political commentators thinking they're taking the high road by essentially avoiding the problem Mm. by silencing him. Yeah. 
And it's interesting to see that the censorship has even gone wider than big tech. Senator Josh Hawley has had his upcoming book, which ironically is about big tech censorship, pulled by Simon & Schuster because he was involved in Trump's campaign to overturn the vote. And the whole thing is just tragic. Do people really think that the way to deal with these kinds of politics they don't like or politics that in the case of Trumpism has really, you know, gone off the rails and has become dangerous. People think the way to deal with that is censorship and it never will be. And it's interesting that people, you know, want to make comparisons with the Nazis and the, and the fascists of, of old and say that, well, you know, if only they hadn't been given the oxygen of publicity, it never would have happened. But of course, you know, that historical analogy is completely untrue. Mm. The Nazis were often arrested in Weimar Germany for producing anti-Semitic propaganda and, you know, various other forms of incitement to racial and religious hatred. It was the inability to deal with these things politically that allows them to get out of hand. Now, thankfully, Trumpism has been dealt with politically. He has lost and his opponent, Joe Biden, has won the most significant popular vote in history. You can say that the public has dealt with Trumpism, but at the same time, there is still this urge among the establishment Mm. to try and memory hold the whole four years. They respond to Trump with such disgust that, you know, he cannot simply be defeated. He has to be erased entirely. We can never, never let him in. We can never hear, Mm. hear another word he says. Tom? It's really alarming how basically the logic of no platform has now been entirely accepted, even in America, you know, the land of the First Amendment. They've basically accepted the premise that you need to censor ideas you disagree with in order to defeat them. The difference is that in the US, they just outsource that to the social media companies and to Mm. cancel culture because they don't have state censorship in the same way that we do. The triumph of that idea is really dangerous. I think the other thing that's dangerous is because it's, again, based on the premise of this idea, not saying that you were saying this, Fraser, that what has happened over the course of the past four years is fascism. Mm. And it's not. Don't get me wrong. There were some pretty extreme right-wing fascistic people who were in the mix of those protests the other day, you know, people walking around with Auschwitz T-shirts on and all the rest of it. But on the whole, it's something a lot stranger, weirder, kind of postmodern, kind of unserious, still vicious with the potential for violence as we've seen. But it's something that is very much of the 21st century. (laughs) And Mm. the strange thing about Trump is that he is this kind of, again, this kind of culture war figure who is is also, in a sense, unserious. You know, his people, as it were, literally stormed the Capitol. And yet he seems to have been more concerned over the course of the last few days about the fact that he was locked out of his Twitter account as a consequence of this. That tells you something about the weird (laughs) movement that it is and the weird moment that we're in. But so not only is censorship not the way to deal with what is a genuinely ugly and authoritarian right-wing movement, but at the same time, using these old labels of the 20th century, I think can cloud our understanding of what it is that's going on, which is very much of our own era and needs to be understood on its own terms. I think the other thing going forward is that we do just need to dispense with these phony defenders of democracy. We know that Mm. Trump is a phony defender of democracy because he spent, you know, the last month or so trying to undo a free and fair election on the basis of batshit crazy conspiracy theories. But also the technocratic elites and the capital D democratic establishment are trying to use the events of recent days in particular to basically burnish their credentials as the defenders of all that's good and holy in relation to liberal democracy. And we cannot let them get away with that. Mm. What they say when they say we need to stand up for democracy and civilization is basically saying we need to defend our right to rule. That's they kind of allied the two things, things getting back to normal, you know, Mm. things getting back to a situation where you have the expert class in charge and the political establishment who 
basically its birthright is to <laughs> rule over the United States and elsewhere are back in position and they're not going to be challenged again. That's kind of what they mean when they talk about this. And also, as we all know, they're huge hypocrites because of their attempts to delegitimize Trump over the past four years. So going forward, it's just so important that we dispense with these kind of phony defenses of democracy and make clear that whilst Trumpism has certainly degraded and has proven himself to be a kind of empty vessel, but a dangerous one at the same time, that democracy is about ordinary people having that clout and that say in society and shaping politics and the world around them. The unfortunate thing is that at this point, we, f- we feel even further away from that than we did even a few years ago. Thanks for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. If you enjoyed the show, why not check out some of Spike's other podcasts in the meantime? We have The Brendan O'Neill Show, in which Spike's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, problems and controversies of life in the 21st century, all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars, hosted by Spiked columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle. This monthly podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Orders, a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.